This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. You're with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. And as we always do, this time of the day, I am joined by Marty Gibson for Media Matters. Good morning, Marty. How are you doing? Great to be here. Yeah, it is good to be here. It's great to, you know, another, we've got another week under our belts. And I know we've said this every week, but certainly every week it definitely feels soggier and squidgier as we're getting closer to the election. Where you and I yesterday were on Breakfast with Paul, we did a little pop up panel with mm. Cam and Paul. And there seems to be a lot more polling this year. And do you think yeah. with these, all these polls, it's a case of, that whole what is the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result do you actually think that there's a level of disbelief out there from those in certain sectors that the wheels have come off the bus it is careering down the hill and there there's about to be carnage i mean there's just more and more of a disconnect more and more get ga- i mean you know gaslighting i know it gets chucked around but it is a representation of a reality that doesn't exist and it's across media, it's across the government, it's across the medical council. There's this insistence. And as I said it last week, hey, nobody talks, everyone walks. You know, they really don't want this emerging series of uncomfortable facts to get out there. For them, that's embodied in New Zealand first. Mm. You know, and there's always argument in the freedom movement about you know, whether he's along for the ride. I I actually cut him some slack in that direction, him, Shane Jones, and certainly some of those candidates that New Zealanders are going to have to vote New Zealand first up over 10% or 11% to get. And I think that, you know, they've been put there deliberately like that. They really don't want them to get into parliament and start saying their piece. The fact that there is that patronising insistence on cutting out voices. We are discussing the papers before we came on, and and there is a fair bit of that, isn't there, this oh, there's week? A, there's a massive amount of that this week. So, there, again, things that we noticed, the PR departments have really ramped up to another level for Labour this week, and for National to a, a lesser degree, and there was lots of sort of, you know, Chippy's going to visit here, and, and this is going to happen, um, this is what's happening in this region, and ultimately... All I am seeing is a disengagement from the general voting public of this country with both our main leaders. The polls show that. The preferred Prime Minister numbers, you know, I mean, Luxon has now crept ahead, but they're not brilliant. Neither of those Chris's set anybody's world on fire. Yeah, I guess I'll have the big giant douche. I don't really want a turd sandwich. Mm, Pretty much. (laughs) You get these incredible things. I mean, I find Vernon Smalls, you know, journalist and former advisor to Labour Party Minister David Parker, I find reading his stuff a bit like eating raw rolled oats. He had one line in his column, which was entitled, the minister for flying nun should note there is some distortion in New Zealand, which doesn't really sort of, but he was talking about how the economy had grown a robust 0.9% in the June quarter. (laughs) And one of his lines was, if our economy is as bog awful as National pretends, the rating agencies would not have retained the country's AAA ratings and Moody's would not have described the government's fiscal position as healthy compared to that of peers. It's worth saying again, these are the rating agencies that caused America's housing crisis because they kept waving through these 
financial organizations that were financially upside down because they were connected with them. And I wouldn't be surprised if their connection to the people who are printing this $100 billion debt gives them some incentive to say, oh, it's okay, Robber who's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. This is, you know, Mrs. Bouquet, not passing a bucket because that's what it really is. It is just keeping up appearances. That kind of leads into Stephen Joyce, because Stephen Joyce's opinion piece was a complete antithesis to Vernon Small. Yeah. The complete antithesis. And it was on essentially that on the GDP. And if anybody is going to know this, it would be him. He, I think, is one of the more effective financial ministers that we've had in the modern era. And he said here this week's GDP number, which relates to economic activity for the three months to June, didn't disappoint. On the face of it, there was something for everybody, a slightly better than expected 0.9% in the quarter, which suited the narrative for the left, but a pretty poor performance over the last nine months, which suited the right, and an almost universal expectation from economists of tougher times ahead, which probably suits no one. Irrespective of a number of parsing, the truth is in economic terms, we are dragging along the bottom. If this is what success looks like, then the current government is lending new meaning to the tyranny of low expectations. And in a stubborn and possibly worsening inflation as a result of recent fuel prices and the accompanying high mortgage rates, there is little wonder people are feeling very squeezed as we approach the election and very actively considering a new government. Yeah. I mean, he... he I always see him tiptoeing up to the edge, but, you know, he wants to stay in within the narrative. You know, he doesn't want to step too far out Overton's window. But what I'm seeing in all, I mean, he says increased spending has achieved bugger all, and who doesn't think they could spend their own money a little more sensibly than this government seems to? We do need to get debt down, and we are overdue to focus on the quality of spending rather than the quantity. However, just doing that, although a big enough task in its own right, will be insufficient. Both approaches don't place enough emphasis on the psyche of the country's economic actors. The businesses, the entrepreneurs, the farmers, the innovators, the risk takers. The only way out of a flatlining economy with high inflation is to grow the growth engine. And that means encouraging this group to invest and grow here in New Zealand. And that's not as easy as it sounds. But he kind of leaves off there. And what I think he hasn't gone into, because it's a huge topic, is that we've lived even well before this current group of Marxist student politicians were given the keys to the country. We've lived with this assumption of equity and these Marxist ideas that everyone's the same. We're at a stage now where that's resulted in basically just the degradation of everything. And, you know, we've talked before about those intangibles are difficult to measure, you know, like in the prefu, they didn't have anything about what effect the just blossoming crime rates, you know, increasing by 800% have on us as a high trust society that you need in order to have a wealthy, thriving, enterprising society. And because we've gone past that, we need an approach that's completely different and no one's really able to quite get there. But I was looking, you know, I spent the weekend in Gisborne and man, you know, there's a lot of people shuffling around. And, you know, when you think, the, the average mortgage is increased by $1,000 a month, the average mortgage. People are so incredibly squeezed. We're at a point now where we need to have systems for functional families to become more functional with an aim to grouping up with other functional families and eventually then 
maybe mentoring between eight families, one that's struggling. But we need to crystallize out high performance, and that's the antithesis of this. Mm. Everyone's the same. Well, it's funny you should mention that. So last night I'm in the middle of reading a book called The Sad Guide to Happiness, and it's written by Gad Sad. So if anyone doesn't know Gad Sad, he is a professor from Concordia University. He's uh, one of Joe Rogan's actually most frequent guests. If you've never seen him, he's brilliant and funny and Mm. entertaining, and he is a really good commentator of the human condition. And he has written, I've mentioned his books before, I've quoted from The Parasitic Mind, which he wrote a few years back. And his new book is literally just about to be launched any day now here in New Zealand. And so I've got an advanced copy, and I was reading it last night because I'm going to be talking to him in a few weeks. Yeah, I know, I'm very excited. Anywho, in one of the passages last night, it was talking about the interesting aspect of human nature and the decisions that we make with the communities around us and how that can affect our happiness. And he gave the example that if you had a person and you were wanting to offer them uh, opportunity, they had a free reign and decision with them and a colleague, and you had two options. So this is in terms of measuring potential financial happiness. And option A was they were able to approve a $600 a week pay rise for themselves, and their colleague got an $800 pay rise. Or option B is they both got a $500 pay rise equally. And he said, in experiment, people will almost always select option B, even though it leaves both parties worse off, because the default that we have is on equity and fairness, when Mm. actually the benefit is in the other option, and they won't select the most beneficial option in order to select the equitable option. Yeah, I mean, and that's almost a childish way of being, that if you do the work, if you spend a bit of time in the fetal position on the ground realising what a terrible, terrible human you are, uh, you can outgrow it. And the problem is that we've had governments where it doesn't suit people outgrowing it. No. You know, I've I've said before, you know, when you realise I've just been eating too many pies and uh, I've let myself go, I'm going to start exercising. And you get out there And there's a little voice in your head that says, oh, this is so unfair. It almost feels like I'm being injured. Who's telling me that my body's not fine the way it is? This is so unfair. And you've just got to see that voice as being external to you and an enemy. And you've got to almost, as the same if you're stopping smoking, there's a voice that says, hey, let's have a cigarette. You've got to detach from that voice. It's not you. It's the addiction and it's trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. And you've got to externalize that and see it as an enemy. And unfortunately, those pathetic, whiny little voices have political representation in socialism. It's someone else's fault. It's not fair. Mm. And so there have been successive governments that have blocked people evolving beyond that. And particularly see this in the way Maori leaders removed these wet academics, remove agency from Maori. Oh, you know, there's high crime rates among Maori because the justice system is is racist. It just lets a whole lot of people off the hook for bad behaviour. Mm. It's that whole adage that the gaslight that the socialists will have you believe is that a rising tide will lift all boats. That's the gaslight. The reality is that, no, we're going to cut everybody down to the lowest common denominator. That's the reality. 
you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Did you see the piece was one of the election pieces that I think it was Bridie Wilson on Northland? Did you see that? Yeah. Again, Northland and Gisborne are kind of similar, aren't they, in, in that sense? My mum grew up in Kaikoui, so I went back there and looked down her street where she grew up. It was pretty grim. My grandfather was an electrician there. He used to do a lot of work for free. I didn't realise your mother was from up north. Yeah. Uh, a whole lot of my family were gum diggers. Things you learn every day. This was interesting. So this is, sorry, Bridie Whitten, mm. Sunday Star Times. It's part of the election coverage. Headline is, my heart couldn't take it anymore. Bridie Whitten discovers how Northland became the cradle of frustration, anger and distrust and asks whether the election will change anything. And I think we talked about this before we started. I think you can correlate a lot of what's going on in Northland, not only to Northland, but also to the East Coast, to parts of central North Island. Metastasizing throughout the country, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, it centres around, it starts with a woman called Sonia Bellinger, who's a local, uh, Kaitaia local. Her entire hometown, her entire life, she's packed up in a truck with the dogs and all the rest of it, and she's bought a plot of land down south, and she's off. Mm. Now, it takes a lot yeah. for a Māori to leave their land. A lot. Well, the heartbreaking thing was that she mentions the night she found children eating out of her scrap bin or being threatened at knife point after making a report of concern about a three-year-old crying at home alone. And this is where I keep talking about government growing like a cancer between us. It's like, we'll take care of that. That's our job. And it's like, look, if you've got a three-year-old who's crying in the house beside you or something, that's everyone's job. It's everyone's job to look out for children in a healthy human society. The fact that the government's taken all of these human functions and alienated us from one another, I mean, it's disgusting, but it's dangerous. Mm. And she cites part of it too, is the violence has increased because of the high number of 501s that have been evicted from Australia and, and gone back there. And that's created that cycle of violence. And as you talked about before, in terms of they all congregate together and they just continue the level of well, lifestyle. Well, I mean, have you ever seen Queensland policing? firsthand, they are uh, considerably more heavy-handed, shall we say, than New Zealand police. Mm. So you've got people coming over here who have been used to a certain level of oppression by a much, and uh, you know, I find Australia generally has much higher levels of the expectation of behaviour in society. I mean, I've seen people tell a young person to get off their seat and let an old person sit down. And everyone on the bus is saying, yeah, what are you doing? You know, there's that expectation of a standard of behavior. Whereas we've had this awful cloying, hey, well, you know, they're behaving like a dickhead, you know, because of all sorts of injustices that have happened. Mm. It's always someone else's fault. Yeah, yeah. And that was the theme with this. Did you notice how here was this woman who has left her entire hometown, everything she's known, she's packed everything up, she's heading down south, and yet she doesn't actually address the issues that this woman is saying, this is why I'm leaving. She actually allows Willow Jean Prime, who's the current MP, who we know got in by the whisker of the knickers um, over on the special votes, over Matt King, yeah. Who's also running, obviously, for Democracy NZ, and we've, you know, we've spoken to Matt and Willow Jean Prime. She believes Willow Jean believes she's done a good job. 
She believes she's done a lot for the region. She believes that she's done has been a strong local MP pointing out to the Labour government's investment in health services in the region, 900 million for a new hospital for Whangarei and 10 million towards renovating the Kotai hospital amongst them. However, she concedes that with five portfolios and much of her time spent in legislation in Wellington, she hasn't been as visible as other candidates such as Nationals Grant McCallum and Matt King, the former National MP. Yeah, oh, you notice just how quickly old Bridie uh, pivoted after terrible tales of people losing children to murder and abused, neglected children, and then pivots immediately. It is where New Zealand First is trying to resurrect its political fortunes and where political parties born out of frustration over the government's handling of the pandemic and vaccination mandates are peddling misinformation and division to some of the poorest families in the country in an effort to win their votes. My gosh. Yeah, that's that's a position, um, isn't it? That's a stretch, isn't it? Mm. Uh, And they never ever, and I saw this in article after article, they never say what the misinformation is. What, What is the misinformation? She doesn't hold back on that. She continues that throughout the article. New Zealand First still have a lot of social capital in the region, and many people recall the big sums Jones and Winston Peters invested into the region throughout the Provincial Growth Fund. Like, that's a bad thing. Just so. Yeah. And then, of course, we get Whiny Bridie comes back and says, politics has become increasingly incendiary with the politicians' experience of surge in harassment and violent threats. Prime said one of her staff stopped wearing a Labour T-shirt when out and about because of the abuse. Mm. Prime has a Prime said a security guard was so concerned for her safety. This is after the debate, the taxpayers' debate. After hearing what members of the crowd were saying, he asked if he could walk her to a car. None of the other candidates, many of whom she'd known for years, stood up for her. She said, I can handle a bit of heckling, but this was undemocratic. <laughs> Bridie, I, I think what you've completely have missed the point, and Willow Jean has missed, no, this is democratic. This is this is the constituency telling you that they are not happy. Yeah, they're not happy that you did a whole lot of stuff that never appeared in your policies that people got to vote on. Prime says candidates seeking to capitalise on pandemic-related distrust, such as King and Gunn, are preying on the community. Those communities where they know there is that distrust, they're vulnerable to misinformation. Again, we don't hear what the misinformation is. Yeah, I guess there's a market for this kind of misinformation. (laughs) Well, it's this to me is an exact example of let's make excuses for a poor performing electoral candidate, because let's face it, she has. She's been whizzed up the ranks within the Labour caucus. As they said, she had five portfolios. Piss poor. Piss mm. poor electoral candidate. She's been missing on the ground. And she admits that. She admits that. So they're trying to cover over and paper the cracks of her poor performance in one of the most impoverished regions in the country by slamming pretty much every other candidate that's there, saying, but, you know, you have to be careful of all of these others because if you go for the national guy, well, he is just representative of all the bad things that happened before we got here. Uh, so it's their fault. Yeah. You can't go with that. You'll be going backwards or everyone else is nutters. Well, Chris Hipkins was saying that uh, yesterday morning in an interview with Ryan Bridges. He said, you know, you, uh, I know things are tough for people, but, um, you know, you've got to be careful putting the people back who whose policies created so many of these problems we're dealing with now. I'm pretty sure their policies didn't borrow $100 billion. Again, it's post-truth media environment. Well, it is. And I think that there is, and this is where, so 
part of the reason I highlighted this, and you've just come back from Gisborne, and I mentioned it on panel yesterday, is that whilst the Māori vote is small, you've got seven Māori seats. Labour currently hold uh, all bar one, which is how we have to party Māori in the House. I haven't seen any polling for Wairiki, but I have heard of the polling for Ikarara, Fiti and uh, Tahuru over on the west, um, the west coast of the North Island. And there was a hope at one point that Te Pāti Māori thought that they would pick up three of those seats, that Rawari would hold Wairiki, Mika would continue to hold Ikarara, Fiti, but for Te Pāti Māori, and Debbie will pick up over there in the west. Now, the polling for both Ikarara, Fiti and Te Haora is that that's not going to happen at this stage. It, it's not looking like a done thing at all. Mm. So then that leaves everything back with Rawari. Now that seat, that seat, Wairiki, which is that central seat in the middle of the country, so think Rotorua, think Taniatua, think Whakatane, through that centre Taupo, think that centre seat. Now that seat, that one's been a good old rubber ball for years. Um, Tura Flavel has held it. Tamaki Coffee has held it in recent years. Rawari won it off Tamati. Tamati, of course, is now jumping over to step in for his cousin over in, um, in Gizzi. Yeah. If Rawari loses Wairiki, which I think could be on the card, I think the anti-party Māori sentiment is so bad, I think that there will be voters that will look at either of those, may not vote for them, or may go back the other direction he was only holding on to it by the skin of his teeth anyway. He didn't win it by a huge margin. If they lose that, that's to party Māori out of the house. And as Cam says, that means that that sucks those candidates uh, for back into the Labour camp, which drops people off the list. But the other side of that is the party vote, because in those Māori electorates, there's not a lot of choice. I mean, essentially, yeah. you've got left, really left, and who left? There's not a lot going on. There's there's a couple here and there, but essentially you, you're only voting on one side of the fence. I think though that protest vote will manifest in the party vote, and I wonder how many of those Māori voters might candidate vote Labour or an alternative if they have one and yeah. party vote New Zealand first. I really do. Everyone is feeling the toxicity that's been drummed up in New Zealand race relations. And I, I said in yesterday's panel, I think New Zealand Māori and Pākehā are pretty over that. And I think New Zealand First is a natural nexus of the area where we meet as decent people. We look at our commonalities. We're happy with each other being how we want to be. But, you know, I, I talk about it as a zipper consensus. You know, we've we've got so much in common and yet we're being torn apart by the corners of our differences. I think there are three levels where New Zealand First will get the boost. It's from someone who wants to make politics interesting by chucking the old pinstripe and the smile into the mix. The people who see that as a normalisation of race relations and the people with the only where it's the only place to go to get expression of some of the reservations that so many people are feeling about. Yeah, the party line that's through the medical association through the media through the through politics mm. one of the things in terms of making a selection is that you know we all look at the issues and i've gotten to a point now where 
uh, as I mentioned before, my candidate vote's fairly set. My party vote's been swinging around. I'm solidifying as each week rolls on. One of the things that has stood out for me is that you've got to realise that if you're a minor party and not one of the major parties, is that there's a lot of stuff that you're going to say that you want to do that you're not just simply going to achieve. But it's a little bit like flinging mud at the wall, right? You've got to throw lots and lots and lots of it at the wall and some of it might stick. And mm. the one thing I believe that I think Winston is throwing out there, and I think he's looking at having stick in a negotiation, is the expanding the scope of the COVID yeah. inquiry. That's one facet. And also, you know, in his interview with Paul Brennan, if you haven't, if you didn't catch it, listen to it on the replays. He took just a perfect line into that corner, you know, where he he said. Uh, and I, I'll have to quote him approximately, but he basically said, look, you know, got all these people trying to drag me into all this political game playing. We've got real problems here in New Zealand, and I'm not hearing a serious discussion about them. And I don't hear that from Luxon either. No. I don't hear, hear any sort of real urgency that, you know, this country is potentially going down the gurgler. We've lost our sovereignty to all sorts of three-letter two-letter agencies, there's no discussion of the me of it in the media because they're bought and paid for. Well, this is where that inquiry for me is really important because from that, if you can widen the scope on that inquiry and some truth actually comes out, because we, if they do do it properly, we know that it's there. There is data now that is coming out. If anyone actually, The Spectator, did you read um, an article that was in The Spectator this last week? I didn't catch that one. I know the okay. one you mean. From the Spectator Australia, Rebecca Barnett. It is one that actually you should be able to access. It's not behind a paywall. Scientists shocked and alarmed at what's in the mRNA shots. Now, this information has been floating around for a little while. I know Mr. Marie has been sharing information to you and I on this, but it, this article actually coalesces all that information into one place. And it's ostensibly, there have been a number of scientists and researchers uh, and clinicians who have discovered that there have been contaminations, DNA contaminations, within vials of the vaccines that actually then breach the FDA, the European EMA um, Medicals Association, even in Australia. So it means that the, essentially the products have not been tested properly and are not fit for, for purpose. Well, and that there were different products and that were, were trialled yes. that was the basis for so many claims about efficacy, which... Mm. In themselves, it turns out, weren't the way they were presented to us. No. But yeah, that, that contamination with bacterial DNA that then can just randomly get into the genome. And also, too, there was these, and some of these are researchers that were pro-vaccines, and we're not talking about people that sit on the conspiratorial and quotation marks side of the camp. These are people that are doing genuine research as part of their day-to-day -day work, have discovered this, are alarmed at what they have found. And this guy, McKernan, who has 25 years' experience in the field, ran an experiment again, confirming that the vials came, contained up to, in his position, 18 to 70 times more DNA contamination than the legal limits allow by the European Medical Agency and the Food and Drug Administration. I mean, this is huge. This sort of information is out there. If we get a proper Royal Commission of an Inquiry into the COVID response, and the vaccine rollout that takes in all this information, a lot of things can change from the truth. But without well, the truth, yeah, we've once got again, the fact that my primary thing is I'm not an expert on this, but I want to see the discussion. I have, you know, enough training in science to know that 
saying the science is settled or 90% of scientists uh, agree just isn't good enough. This was something we picked out of the um, whole paper. And for me, a lot of a lot of the themes of this week swing around Heather Duplissy-Allen's article where she, or column where she talks about the conflict between the laptop class and the tactile class. The laptop class are just condescendingly say, well, we could let you have the debate, but then you'd come up with the wrong conclusions and that wouldn't be good. And and that's just, and as I said, it's not just in the time Labor's been in power. This has been through our society, these organisations just turning the wheel really hard one way because they think it needs to go that way. Ministry for Women being one that I always think of. She's talking about in terms of how many people consistently vote against co-governance. She said, that result surprised me. It was many times higher than I would have expected. She was saying, but basically she's a laptop kind of gal. You saw that in... I saw that in the post and I took a photo and sent it to you. And Elise Johnson, the head of content development for Stuff's Mast, said the post, the press and the Waikato Times, who's moved to New Zealand from Britain. And she did a piece called A Warning Coming from Brexit Britain on Divisive Referendums. She quoted uh, an exclusive polling for the post from Freshwater. So that was that Freshwater poll we talked about a few weeks ago. It has revealed that 48% of New Zealanders agreed to varying degrees that there should be a referendum on Māori co-governance to end the confusion and let every New Zealander have a say. Only 17% thought it was a bad idea and 34% were neutral. From the same poll, 28% agreed that there should be more co-governance with Māori in government decision-making, while 34% were neutral and 45% disagreed. Almost half the country disagreed. Um, The 34% of the swingers, they're the go-alongs to get-alongs, but you wouldn't need to get many more of them to make the majority. Additionally, the poll revealed that 49% agreed government departments should be known by the English name, not their Māori name. The issue with referendums is that they require people to answer a simple yes or no to a question. In this case, the responses would decide whether there should be less or more representation for Māori. It would be a hard-fought referendum and the battles for the swing votes would be ferocious. It's a decision that would define race relations for generations to come. She then goes on to talk about Brexit. In the UK, Brexit referendum is now known for its false promises. The most famous promise coming from the Leave side claimed that the vote would create an extra £350 million a week for the National Health Service, which is very much yet to materialise. Putting aside the broken promises, a referendum's real harm comes from the style of public debate it can legitimise. We see this playing out in the voice referendum in Australia. The debate has given a greater platform to conspiracy theories and warnings of reparations. A referendum has the power to morph very quickly from a yes or no debate into whatever it can be. It's interesting when people say that stuff out loud, hey, yeah. that, that, that contempt for the proletariat. That just, to me, it was just dripping of condescension because yeah. if you've been following the voice referendum in Australia, the yes vote is tanking. The Australians, yeah. you know, the, one, the ones that you described, yeah, come on, mate. Look, you get up out of that seat for that old lady. That yeah. voice is speaking, and it's speaking quite loudly. It's interesting that refusal of people to be deterred by being called racist, the stuff's just losing its power. It's just squid ink. I mean, as I've explained, it's not because people don't like Māori that they don't want this stuff. It's because they don't like being talked to like they're slaves. 
by the Maori elites who measurably do bugger all for the tutua, the common people. Did you see Winston's interview with Moana Maniapoto? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. He held his ground really well with her. And she got a bit excited by that, I thought. Yeah, she did. She did. She she got a little bit tingly. I think she wasn't expecting how crisp he was on a lot of these details. And he was quite blunt with her. So he called out, so this was from Māori Television, and he called out, she would say things like, for example, around apartheid. Why do you use that word apartheid? Do you know what that word means for our people? Mm. He's like, because that's what it is. Yeah. You want to make race-based law. That, he was, that separates it, people. And I think that there will be a lot of queer in Kaumatua who would have watched that interview, mm. and there would have been a lot of head nodding. Well, you know, this is where it's really important that there's a strong voice from Pākehā New Zealanders emphasising that, you know, there's love, there's kinship between us and Māori. This isn't uh, us wanting to oppress you. We read about that stuff that's happening Mm. in Auckland and Northland and see it in the streets of other towns. It's appalling. Children that are suffering like that are all of our concern. And we need to all be involved in fixing it. We don't need to make race-based law to do it, although kaupapa Māori approaches have their place if they're effective. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. The next little stuff in this article that I pulled out, that this to me was the telling one. In referendums, the media is obliged to air all sides of the debate with the risk of dog whistle politics being the megaphone. Now, there is the real reason why they don't want a referendum on this, because all that dirty laundry is going to get aired. Let's not let the truth get in the way of a good referendum. Yeah, the thing that always worries me is this assuredness they have pushing all this stuff and you can sense their nervousness and they're becoming more shrill as it's not working. The propaganda is just not working. But it's almost like they've got a finish line that they're seeing. They're hearing the footsteps behind them, but they're just pushing ahead to reach that finish line. Now, whether that finish line is a central central bank digital currency that's linked to some sort of social credit scheme, whether it's all of these uh, misinformation laws that DLE has gone off to drive globally that shuts out voices even more than they're already shut out like ours. That's what makes me nervous. You know, whether there's, they're thinking if we can just sort of survive and hang on through to the next shock, that's planned, that's going to make people get in line because we know, you know, all of the MK Ultra research these guys have done has revealed that if you want to break people down, periodic stress works a lot better than constant stress. Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? She goes on to say giving oxygen and legitimacy to debating all sides of a referendum would embolden and inflame an underbelly of less tolerant views. Certainly following the Brexit referendum in the UK saw an increase in overall racism, not directed towards Europeans, but rather anyone that could be perceived as an immigrant. (sighs) Really? I just looked at this. I was appalled by this, Elise. I really did. It's literally saying we cannot have an open conversation because if we do not agree with the orthodoxy. Yeah, it's Willie Jackson's, this is the new democracy. Mm. It's not like the old democracy. 
I've gotten to a point now with any of these people, if you struggle to understand what it is that they're trying to say, as Neil Oliver often says, it isn't about what they say it is about. Whatever they're saying, dollars to donuts, they'll actually be meaning the opposite. Well, the outcome is that's desired mm. is the exact opposite of what they're saying. It's Luciferian, that whole reverse meaning and upside-downness. Yes, indeed. Just what else grabbed your eye over the, over the week? Well, Andrea Vance's um, new haircut, I thought, was very fetching. Much softer, fringe? that much softer fringe. That little bit of that little bit of femininity creeping in, and she's taken off the Darth Vader hairstyle. So yeah, no, that that looks nice, and I, it's hopefully you know the start of a, a whole new charm offensive by uh, New Zealand's lemon-lipped political commentators. Utter charmlessness. She, uh, of course, her article was around the cryptosporidian outbreak in Queenstown. I just feel like this is going to be Havelock North 2.0. Right. In what sense? Well, in the sense that they are going to use this as a political football in order to push and legitimise elements of Three Waters in the Havelock document because of lack of investment of infrastructure within water assets in local body politics. Yeah. You know, National always talk about this is taxpayers' money. They never really get around to talking about not so much money from the taxpayer as money where the taxpayer's future earnings is used as collateral for stupid borrowing. They don't talk about that nearly enough, I, I think. And, you know, one of the big things about the Three Waters plan was it raised the amount of debt that these organisations were allowed to have. And that was where a lot of the improvements come from. It's just blowing out the debt. Again, it's just like talking about stuff that is a distraction rather than the real elephant in the room. You know what I found more interesting than Andrea's piece? I happened to glance up to the letters in the editor that were just above Andrea. Oh, right, yeah. There's one there that says Grand Coalition. I've Yeah, that that warranted a bit of highlighter. It did. Surely it is time for Labour and National to put aside petty point scoring and politicising and face the perilous future of climate change, war, pestilence, famine and mass migration by enacting a grand coalition. After watching the first round of debates, there is not a lot between Labour and National policies. The main points of difference being tax, housing and crime, all needing long-term solutions beyond the election cycle. Such a coalition would keep the extremes of the left and right at bay, although I have to say I find Party Māori and the Greens more palatable than ACT. Germany's Angela Merkel ran a grand coalition very successfully for many years. Mm, well, what very successfully. terrifying as in, thought. Yeah, let, let a million military-aged males... Um, yeah, through, through open borders that they're all now starting to freak out about. I looked at that and I thought to myself, thank you, comrade, for your thought on that. Because that just goes to your equity. Yes. It's going to be an interesting few weeks. We need to maintain that sense of compassion in terms of long-term compassion. Mm. And what that, that is going to involve getting people off the couch and jogging metaphorically and... Uh, in terms of work. And the problem that you get, you know, there's that observation that people on the left think that 
poor people would be better if there, there wasn't just so much oppression holding them back. And people on the right think that poor people would get ahead if they just got off their butts and worked. It doesn't factor in IQ and it doesn't factor in brain damage. I think there is a place for making sure everyone's got work. Because uh, I remember hearing a talk once by a Welsh doctor and he said studies of the effect of unemployment were revealed that it was had a similar deleterious effect on your health as smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. It's really bad. So again, you can look at it through a compassionate rather than a, a punishing lens and go, well, you know, it's going to suck at first. Like mm. it sucks going for those first few runs where you can feel every beer you had and everything you smoked. But eventually you look back on the time when you felt that it was something you really didn't want to do and you're so glad that you got through that period. Well, you mentioned something before we started recording and I just want to cycle back to that because I thought it was a really good point. And it was around mental health and we're seeing this that despite the government saying that they're throwing this money into mental health, like everywhere that they throw money, where are the outcomes for this? We know that there is a mental health crisis out there. And when it comes to that, and this is why I'm reading this book, The Sad Guide to Happiness, and I'm really interested in talking to Gad Sad around happiness and how we obtain happiness. But one of the things you talked about was that whole sense of mana. And yeah. one of the things that gives anybody a sense of mana or a sense of pride, which, as you said before, the Australians seem to have more than what we have here, is actually a sense of belonging and well-being. And often that is attached to your ability to go out into the into your community and work and have a sense of independence and self-ownership. Yeah. And, and you know what it means if a young man has some runs on the board, feels like he's made an effort and he's built up some mana. He's far less likely to push all those chips forward on a bet if someone looks at him the wrong way and he's got the option of punching them in the face, you know, because people are going to be disappointed. It's vital that people have money. And old uh, Shane Tapoe, you know, had that, again, you know, we both sort of thought, Shane, you know, how much of this was given to you by one of the comms people and you've put your own little nips and tucks on it? But he, his arguments seem to be basically that mental illness is, is an identity. It's not something that you go through fleetingly. So, you know, the idea, but yeah, having worked in a client advocating mental health organization, I remember old friend Genesis Portini, who was a very strong advocate in that area, saying the best thing for people with mental illness is to hang out with people who don't have mental illness. Also, to have opportunities to build up their mana when they're not mentally ill, because your mana takes a hit when you are. Yeah, that involves work, you know, and mm. you can go back to when I think it was the Clark government shut down all those um, idea services workshops because they weren't paying the minimum wage. And there's so many jobs to do. Like we should, you know, all the slash in the forestry, there's a job there you could make. You know, if you were going to be imaginative, you could make uh, drug rehabilitation camps uh, where yeah. people worked during the day doing that, did something creative with the slash, got better, felt that they'd achieved something. If you've ever worked on land, and I've done a lot of this, planting trees and cut 10 kilometres of possum trapping tracks in the back of uh, Haparapara uh, catchment near Takar, you do feel a connection to the whenua long after you stop. You feel that there's something you've done that's good. 
there's all sorts of opportunities for mana uh, uplifting in mm. that stuff. But we, we need, and this is where I'd get back to Stephen Joyce's not quite getting there. We need to totally take things to bits and have a look at them. And that's going to mean having a freer media. It's going to mean taking the national conversation off the tracks it's on. I mean, we, we do need to, as citizens, take responsibility. Mm. Take responsibility for ourselves, our families, our neighbourhoods, our, our regions. But there's been, and you could almost argue it's been deliberate, you know, a, a family that's got to find that extra $1,000 to pay the mortgage has got even less time to do that. Mm. So, you, you know, it's, it, the dependency on government's almost reached the critical mass where people have got no choice. And it's that demoralisation too, you know, of yeah. having to... But you're not measuring in the GDP no. figures, in the health system. You need high morale. Mm. And if you've ever had to deal with those government departments, which, you know, I have had to in the last couple of years for the first time ever, is it is just soul-sucking. Yeah, it's the, the tactile class versus the laptop class. For whatever reason, I think it's reading a lot of Steinbeck and Jack London uh, as a kid, um, Jack Karak. I was always very concerned to, to be involved in the tactile class. I've, I've always enjoyed doing uh, physical work, and I think part of that comes from my childhood growing up on on farms, having families who farmed, and my image of what men were revolved around you know my watching my cousin and uncle and grandfather shear sheep with big shoulders and their dogs and guns and trucks and i always found it very difficult to see men in suits as men yeah yeah laptops yeah and I, this is my problem with christopher lux and it's quite you know speaking of genesis portini i remember once i used to shave my head and shave my face and i'd sort of let it go and he said oh Oh, Marty, you look. Yeah, I reckon you should keep the keep the beard, bro. You know, you, uh, and I said, oh, you know, you know, yeah, grow your hair a bit. And I said, oh, how come? And he, he sort of struggled a bit. He said, it just seems like you know when you've got no hair, it's like you've you've got no inner life. And I think that's a problem that they have with Luxon as well. Maybe you should have a moment where he lets his hair grow. I had my best friend here over the weekend, and he had great fun helping me collate the stuff from the papers. And I handed him the scissors. So he applied what I call the queer eye for the news guy for us. And there were lots of little interests. And we've covered a few things actually that he chopped out. But this is one that he did chop out. And it's only a small piece. And, and you'll think, why is this related to what we're discussing this morning? And I think it's very related because this is where we could potentially head up. And in a way, the theme of what's going on here is sort of Loosely analogous to what is going on. The headline is called Bag Ladies of the Privileged Set. Secret police in North Korea are mobilized to stamp out decadent foreign influences such as film, television, and even haircuts. But the rules do not apply to the women around Kim Jong un, the country's leader. Photographs of his recent visit to meet Russian President Vladimir Putin in eastern Russia show his sister and his foreign minister carrying European handbags banned in North Korea under international sanctions. Kim's former girlfriend, who serves as his head of protocol, is the exception, however. She has had to make do with a cheap Chinese brand. 
Ko Sun Hui, Kim's foreign minister, is an experienced diplomat well known for her heavy smoking and the ability to outdrink her male colleagues. During a visit to an aviation plant in somewhere unpronounceable in Russian, she carried a vintage Zumi bag by Gucci, which sells secondhand online for 16700 New Zealand dollars. Kim Jo Jong, the leader's sister, regarded as one of the most powerful people in the country, carried a Lady Dior calfskin bag, which costs 11500 new here in New Zealand. By contrast, Huyen Song Wol, the former pop star rumoured to be Kim's old flame, has a bag made out of China, which costs New Zealand $14. At home, North Korea officials pursue a campaign against the decadent culture, such as dying here, drinking parties, as well as films, TV dramas, news programs, especially those from South Korea. Senior members of the regime, however, are known for their appetite for foreign luxuries. And that is very much of the good for me, but not for thee file. And we are starting to see shades of that here. Well, I mean, this, you know, this is an animal farm, it is. an out here, out here Rona animal farm just waiting to happen, isn't it? It's never quite appreciated, is it, the, the, the extent to which men and women cooperate. You know, we're always sort of given this idea, well, there's a glass ceiling. I think in one of the earlier episodes, I, I shared my theory that corresponding with the glass ceiling, there's what I call the pink seal. These men who want status like to surround themselves with adoring PR, HR ladies. And, uh, they run interference to, for, you know, against any pretenders to the throne. And you see Christopher Luxon reflexively doing this also. Nicola Willis. Nicola Willis and, and Erica Stanford, which isn't to say they're not competent, but, you know, the whole, well, I want 50% of my list MPs to be ladies. And there, there's this kind of, corporate thing where the captains of industry like to have those approving ladies. Obviously, Kim Jong-un uh, is no exception. No, no exception. Well, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, as always. And I know, you know, as the weeks roll on, I mean, early voting, by the time we get together and chat next week, early voting will have opened. That will be interesting to see. We have got feedback, Marty. Oh, yes. Ooh. Let's finish on a high note, shall we? Right. First up from Mark. Hi, please pass on to Marie and Marty. I cannot miss their show. Well done. Keep it up. I'm listening in order, so I don't want to miss anything. Your political insights are enlightened. Keep it up. So that was from Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. We will. Oh, Mike. Do you remember we talked to, I think, then the thing that was last week, Mike from Fox. Mike who lost his wife who knitted his, right. And Mike sent me a photo, I'll I'll make sure it's shared with you. Mike did send me a photo of the blanket. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, I did hear Marie read out my message and I loved her show. I've been so busy trying to sort all kinds of dramas out with my new mobile home. uh, So I haven't been able to listen to anything. But here is a picture of the rug that my wife made and it's beautiful. So Mike, thank you so much for sharing that and that's such a beautiful precious thing that you have so it is just wonderful he then goes on to say hi again Marie and Marty I'm just listening to the replay of Media Matters because I missed the first 15 minutes the other day it was interesting to hear Marty talk about the big convention in Auckland last week which was the NZD SOS conference 
and how it was so good to finally meet some of the people from RCR that he speaks to, but he hasn't yet met. I hope you guys at RCR and VFF realise that you're another rock stars for all of us who have basically given up TV and have completely given up on mainstream radio and media. If it wasn't for all of you, I don't know where we would be. I know I would not be in a good place. So thank you again for everything that you do. So That's so nice to hear, isn't it? And, you know, it's often because we do this by ourselves, even though we're talking to other people, but essentially we're on our own. So it's it, it's so nice to hear that people it's resonating mm. with people and it's encouraging them and making them feel a bit more hopeful that there are other people out there who aren't thinking like the people they're seeing on TV. Because it's so easy. They want to keep us separated and keep us alone. So it's really nice that, that we are able to do that because, I mean, Marty, as you know, is, is in Papamoa, I'm in Napier, and we do so much of this over Zoom and can feel a little lonely. And so we talk into microphones and we don't always know who's listening on the other side. Keep speaking the truth, and I'd say that to everyone. Just keep speaking the truth and don't be forced to lie. No, absolutely not. Marie and Marty, this won't cheer Marty up, oh dear, but at least I'm thinking about something he said. His banality of evil evil with chipkin sausage rolls brought to mind holidaying German camp guards. They were mugging for the camera and while holding up some fruit. I tried to find the photo to send him, but bucket if I can, Mark. I actually know the photo he's talking about. Do you know, have you ever seen that photo? Yeah, I, I, I will have. But I was saying, uh, I'm not sure if I said it on air yesterday uh, with the um, impromptu panel. On Netflix now, there's the documentary of the book Ordinary Men, which is about the Polish police or German police as well, I think, who, who were co-opted mm -hmm. into these uh, execution squads. And just how easy it is to bend people to do awful things. And we're so fond of patting ourselves on the back, thinking we've come so far, but we're still the same creatures. And you've got yeah. to watch out for that. Yeah. Absolutely. So thank you so much to everyone that sent us feedback. Inbox at realitycheck.radio, of course, is the email, and 2057 is the text number. Oh, well, thank you, Marty. We will do this all again next week. As I said, early voting will have opened, and there will be more polls, and there will be more information, and I am sure more. More to talk about. More to talk about. So thank you, yeah. Matt. You have a great week, and I will be back very, very shortly in just un momento, a uh, work news of the week. And I've got a few little interesting, quirky things to let you know about here. I'm on sure Radio. you do. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks again, yeah. Marie, for the great work you do too. Oh, thank you, mate. All right, we'll talk. do it all again next week. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.